0: Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty.
1: I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Gregory Hartley, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Greg, welcome to PTJ Podcast.
0: Thank you, Dr. Jetty. I'm very pleased to be here.
1: We're going to talk about a study that he and his colleagues published in physical therapy. It's entitled Program Level Factors Influencing Positive Graduate Outcomes of Physical Therapy Residency Programs. I'll give a brief summary of the study, and then we'll talk about it. The objective of the study, which was a retrospective cohort study, was to look at the influence of the association of residency program factors on outcomes from 183 residency programs and 1,589 residents from 2010 to 2013. The team used data collected on administrative structure, the size, the resident's salary, tuition, full or part-time options, didactic format, and the clinical site structures. They examined the impact of the program characteristics on three outcomes, graduation rates, board certification, and passing the certification exam. Participants attending programs that were single site, or rotated the residents through multiple sites, provided live versus online didactic instruction, did not charge tuition, paid residents at least 70% full-time equivalent salary, were nine and 9.8 times more likely to graduate the residents, over five times more likely to become board certified, and over three times more likely to pass the specialty board examination. So very striking findings. So Dr. Hartley, what got you interested in this topic of research? It was really quite a fascinating study.
0: I've been interested in post-professional residency education and and fellowship education for a long time, and early in the 2000s, I guess, around 2002 or 2003, I started what would become the first accredited geriatric residency uh, in the country, and that kind of got me in at the ground level on residency education. And after I went through that process, I became involved in the credentialing and accreditation process with what's now termed the American Board of Physical Therapy Residency Fellowship Education, or ABPTRFE, and in my involvement with that accreditation body, I served as chair when it was a credentialing organization, and then I served as chair when it was a board, and I've remained a site visitor uh, and continue to do that still. So I've been involved, I guess, in the accreditation process for a long time, and through that involvement I had seen quite a bit of variability in how residency education programs were structured and how they were operationalized across the country. There was pretty wide variability. Part of that, of course, was by design, there was not ever meant to be any kind of restriction on that uh, in physical therapy, and we didn't have any data that told us which types of characteristics worked better than others in terms of resident outcomes. So as I was involved in the accreditation process, I began to see programs that were very large, some that were very small, some that were based in universities, some that were based in small clinics, some that were based in neither a clinic nor a university, some that were full-time, part-time, various characteristics that really were just quite variable. And I was curious to see if those characteristics mattered. When I began to sort of dig through the literature that was out there, of course, there's nothing in physical therapy uh, until now, and in the medical literature, in medical education, um, they tended to look at some of the same outcomes that we looked at, uh, namely specialty board examination pass rates. And they also look at program characteristics. And so delving into that literature, we began to see how medical residency education was looking at various program characteristics, and so I kind of sparked the idea to determine uh, or try to figure out which which of these variables mattered most in terms of the outcomes that we we could measure.
1: Is that how you selected the program characteristics that you studied in this paper?
0: Yeah, it is, because I had been involved in the accreditation process, I, I knew what data, the board was collecting, the accreditation body, on its annual reports, partly because I had been involved as a program director, and so I was submitting those reports for my own program, but also because I was involved in accreditation, I was aware of the data that was being collected. So, yeah, the short answer is the reason we chose the characteristics and qualified them the way that we did was because that was the data that was available to us through the uh, ABP. PTRFE. The outcome variables we chose because really that's the only outcomes that we have that are common among all programs. It's really you know whether or not individuals graduate, whether or not they sit for board examinations, and then if they sit for those exams, whether or not they pass them. Certainly, programs have their own individual program goals that are unique to the program, but the common outcome among all programs was graduation and, and board certification and pass rate.
1: In your article, you do talk about some of the previous research in physical therapy, which, as I understand it, was has been primarily focused on patient-level outcomes. What has, in, in, in summary, what has this prior research shown when they're looking at patient-level outcomes instead of the outcomes that you focused on in your study?
0: There has been a little bit of research on outcomes of residency education, and as you mentioned, it has focused almost exclusively on patient outcomes, which arguably is ultimately perhaps the most important factor. There have been only a couple of studies, though, that have been published, both in JOSPT, One from 2000, which was almost too early in the residency formation process in physical therapy. Um, We had just really gotten off the ground in terms of accrediting in uh, residencies back then. Uh, And that, that study really just looked at the difference between whether or not someone who was board certified in orthopedics did better in terms of patient outcomes than those who were not board certified. So it didn't specifically look at residency education and again it was from 2000 very early. The other study is more recent from 2015 and that study looked both at residency and fellowship training and found a difference in outcome, a positive difference, only for those that were fellowship trained. However. That study had some limitations that included a smaller number of patients that were treated by residency or fellowship-trained therapists, uh, some selection bias, a low survey response rate, problems with representative sample from a commercially available database. So that article was accompanied by a follow-up commentary that pointed out some additional limitations, including how administrative structure of programs and clinics, like referral patterns or clinic business models, might actually impact care delivery. They also brought up how patient satisfaction might impact that. And importantly, I think they brought up how age and years of experience were confounding factors because the residency trained group in that particular study was younger and less experienced than the other two groups. And so that could definitely have confounded it. So that article began to suggest, at least to me anyway, that there were other factors at play beyond just whether or not someone might be residency trained. Could it be organizational structure? Could it be experience uh, or other factors that were involved in patient outcome? So again, all that data was related to patient outcome, whereas this study focused on success of the resident.
1: I liked the way that you took the profile of organizational factors and you you organized them into two primary types, which you just labeled type 1 and type 2, and compared the two. I thought it was a nice way to summarize the uh, the information. Can you just discuss briefly for our listeners the key differences between those you classified as type 1 versus type 2?
0: We looked at the factors, the the various variables that we had from the accreditation data, and in order to calculate our odds ratios, we needed to dichotomize those. And some of the data that we had were already dichotomized. For example, either you pay someone a salary or you don't. You either are full-time or you're not. We then took those that were continuous, and thankfully, they were bimodal in their distribution. So we just took what was below the mean and what was above the mean and created dichotomous variables. And so what we ended up with were program size as one characteristic, and the cut point there was for four residents. So if you were one to four residents, you were classified as small. And if you had more than four residents, you were classified as large. We looked at clinical site structure. And by that, we're talking about how the resident functions in the clinic, whether they are in a single clinic with other residents or alone uh, throughout the entire year and that clinic is housed where the the residency administration is housed, or if those residents might rotate among different facilities, but at the end of the year, the residents would have had the same experience in the same facilities, but just in different order. So that was termed multi-facility. And the third type is called multiple site, where there's no rotation. The residents don't rotate. They're in various sites um, potentially across the city or across the community or potentially even across the country, and they do not rotate between those sites. So we had single site and multi-facility, those two, where the residents, at the end of the year, they have had the same exposure to the same clinics and the same types of patients. And then we had the other one, which was multiple site, and that's where the residents do not rotate and, and have potentially different kinds of clinical situations. The other characteristics were didactic instruction, and so there we looked at whether or not the didactic content in the residency program was provided face-to-face and live or if there was some remote or even a hybrid remote and live content to the didactic instruction. Next, we looked at tuition. So either they charge tuition or they don't. So that was uh, straightforward. Then we looked at salary. For salary, we again had a bimodal distribution. The mean here was 70%. So those programs that were greater than or equal to 70% in terms of what they paid a resident were classified into one group, and then those that paid less than 70% in the other. Next, we looked at part-time option, and it was just whether or not that part-time option was offered. And then we looked at administrative structure, and that was whether or not the overall administration of the program, meaning its operation, its accreditation, its oversight, its management, whether that was done by an academic institution defined as an institution accredited by CAPTI, or a clinical institution, such as any kind of clinical practice or some other institution that is neither clinical nor academic. So it could be a commercial operation, any kind of a business entity that was running it. We dichotomized that by combining academic or clinical into one variable, and then the non-clinical and non-academic group as the other variable. So we ended up uh, looking at all these different dichotomous variables. And we chose the variables that had the least common characteristic as the referent variable. So we divided them into type 1 and type 2. Can you
1: just give me a quick sense of what a type 1 looks like, just so the listeners can get a real sense? Because there are many different components here, and it can get really quite confusing. Give me a quick summary of type 1.
0: Sure. So type 1 is a program that has residents either at the same site or the residents rotate through the same sites over the course of a year. So all the residents will, at the end of the year, will have had the same exposure to the same clinics and the same types of patients. They also provide live instruction with no remote. They do not charge tuition and they pay a salary that's greater than 70% of an FTE. Those characteristics, same site or multi-facility, live instruction, no tuition, and a salary greater than 70% were the characteristics that were classified as type 1. If you think about that, that begins to sort of mimic a very traditional, almost um, kind of a, a medical model as well.
1: And that's the type of residence program that you found almost 10 times more likely to graduate the residents, over 5 times more likely for them to become board certified, and over 3 times more likely to pass the specialty board exam. Right. Were you surprised by that finding?
0: Yeah, we were. First, we were just surprised at how strong the numbers were. Ten, Almost 10 times more likely to graduate was striking. and to be completely honest, we didn't go in thinking that graduation rates was going to be an outcome, but when we began to look at it, uh, we discovered that it was quite important. We didn't even think about that to begin with, but it showed up in our data, uh, and so we we had to pay attention to it. So I was surprised at the fact that 15% of the individuals who began a residency program don't graduate. And that's not, I don't believe that that's because they're failing out. I think that that's because they quit, you know, through part of the program. So we we were just surprised by that. It seems like uh, that combination of factors um, played into it. Now, you'll note in the Type 1 programs, the full-time and the part-time option isn't part of the model, and that's because we only had data at the program level in terms of their full or part-time status, meaning we only knew whether or not a program offered part-time. We didn't actually know if individuals took advantage of the part-time. So that's not that's the reason that it's not in the final Type One model. But it turns out that many of the larger programs are also offering part-time options And so I think that that probably plays into the graduation rate and why it was so tied to that type of program. So, yeah, we were surprised by that. We were also surprised that so many people who graduate don't actually take the board certification exam upon graduation, and that was really surprising to me because I would think that by virtue of graduating from a residency program, an accredited residency program, there's a streamlined process to become board certified. At least the application process is streamlined, and that's intended to reflect the fact that as as a result of graduating from a residency, they've met all the criteria that's required to sit for the examination. So when we discovered that 14% of the people who graduate programs do not attempt the exam at all, that was also a bit of a surprise for us and something that isn't reflected in any of the other literature which I can I can explain that later. So that was a, again a surprise and and some explanations might might be that they they could have attended a residency for other reasons uh, just to improve their own clinical skills and clinical judgment and had no intention of becoming board certified they might not value board certification at some level or it could be a financial reason so the ex- the cost of taking the examination could also be a barrier and lastly we were struck by the fact that while nearly 80% of the classified programs were type 1, 67% of the participants were in type 2 programs. So that was surprising. Um, And that suggests then, obviously, that type 2 programs tended to be larger programs, obviously. So that, again, those characteristics were more common in the type 2 programs because they were larger.
1: Well, it's a very striking finding and I thought it was a really good way to to summarize it for, for the reader. When you looked at the individual characteristics, if I read it correctly, the residents who were in programs that trained all the residents at the same site or rotated all residents across multiple sites, what you called multi-facility,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they were more than twice as likely to pass the examination um, as compared to residents in programs that had multiple clinical sites, but they didn't rotate the residents among the sites. You call them multi-site. Right. Uh, Why do you think that was your strongest individual association?
0: I think that there's probably a lot that goes into that. There is consistency and, I think, good control and oversight of the clinical curriculum in single-site or what we call multi-facility programs, those that rotate the residents through the same site. And there may be less control of that in multi-site settings, particularly if those settings are spread out uh, across many states or across the whole country. There may be some difficulty in controlling that. And so resident A may have a really different kind of clinical experience than resident B, because they are in different clinical sites and different locations, and they don't see the same, potentially, the same kind of caseload or complexity. So first off, just by design, I think it's more difficult to manage and oversee that, and so that that introduces a level of variability that uh, is less variable in in the single-site and and multi-facility programs. So that case variety and case complexity plays a role in success on specialty board examinations, and there's a lot of literature on that particular topic in medical residency education. And so if individuals are in sites that don't get that wide variety of clinical exposure, I think that that definitely plays a role. The other thing is in some multi-site facilities, the mentor may be at that site or the clinical mentor for the resident might actually be in a different site and not available all the time, whereas in most single site or multi-facility locations, the mentor is generally available uh, all the time. And that also has been shown to to play a role in success on the specialty board examinations and the medical literature. So there seems to be uh, something going on with what has been written about as the community of practice and this um, this community of practice where there is layered learning or near peer learning happening um, through the presence of a mentor, the presence of a resident, the presence sometimes of the even students uh, that are there, and that kind of layered learning that happens through this community of practice where there's a lot of, of intention about learning that is pretty common in programs where the residents matriculate together in a cohort, where they are in the clinic together where their mentor is available to them. And even when they're not being mentored, the mentor is still available. That kind of community of practice um, definitely has been shown to make a difference uh, in the medical literature. And I think that that's probably playing a role here, but that's not something that we directly investigated. So, So what I'm Speculating is just that, It's speculation about, about what might be influencing it, but I think that it has a role.
1: Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. I suspect your findings will generate a lot of interest within the residency community. Have you had the opportunity to share some of your findings to your colleagues, and what has been the reaction?
0: I haven't shared a lot as a result of this particular study, um, because it just came out. So I'm curious to see what the reaction will be. We've shared some preliminary data during uh, some previous combined section meetings. We had a couple of abstracts and some posters and platforms. Uh, So some preliminary data was shared there, and the the reaction's been pretty good, at least based on that particular um, presentation or those presentations. I think there's a lot of interest around growth in residency education, our professions having a fairly lengthy conversation, I think, about clinical education and clinical training and the the whole continuum of clinical training, inclusive of professional and post-professional education and where that fits and how we can accommodate a need for um, potentially more specialization um, and where residency education fits into that. There's been conversation about mandatory residencies, there's been conversation about um, a wide variety of changes in in how we train our graduates uh, and also our our professional level students. So you know, Cornelia kool this is quoted in our paper, um, did the Maley lecture a few years ago, and and one of her comments was that we needed to be careful about how we expand the growth of residency education uh, because there's danger in, in creating programs that don't necessarily have produced the kind of, of product that we need. And so I think that this study sheds a little light on what kind of at least the program characteristics that seem to make a difference. And certainly because of the strength of some of these uh, ratios, I think that it's it's pretty – I'm pretty confident that some program characteristics do make a difference.
1: I certainly think your study and the findings will stimulate a lot of discussion in this area of our our profession. So I'm really pleased that um, it's now available for people to uh, to digest and to, and to discuss. Let me end by saying I really enjoyed the paper and I think it's a really important piece of work. I appreciate you and your colleagues sending it to P T J, and I would urge our listeners to take the opportunity to to read the study and to to give it a lot of consideration. So thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
0: And thanks for having me. It's been fun.